Colossians 3, our text for today, it's clear it speaks about that part of our salvation we call sanctification. The fact that God wants us as believers, he requires of us as believers to live a certain way. And it starts off with that statement, if then you have been raised with Christ. And that if then statement is, it goes along with every every uh, a phrase then or every command uh, in this chapter. Since or if you have been raised with Christ, then you are to um, uh, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. Put to death, verse 5. Uh, put off, verse 8, as we went through last week. We, we see all of those things. So it covers all of this chapter in including into chapter 4, the first six verses there. Um, we left off last week talking about this command then, verse 5, that's a part of our walk with the Lord, a part of our sanctification. And he states it this way in verse 5, put to death. Put to death. And we, we, we mentioned how that emphasizes that there are extreme measures required on our part then to live the way that God wants us to live. We even noted in Matthew uh, chapter 5 where Christ talked about if, if your eye causes you to sin. He didn't say just close it or cover it up. He said pluck it out. He said if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. In other words, extreme measures, uh, we need to take extreme measures in our walk with the Lord so that we are disciplined and living the way that he would have us to live. Now let me point out though, what I've been pointing out several times, saying it in different ways. Notice in verse 5, he says, put to death therefore. That therefore points back to verse 1. In other words, because you have been raised with Christ, in other words, you are now risen with Christ, you are now resurrected, you have a new life, because you've been saved, therefore put to death. Verse 8 says it again, or excuse me, verse uh, 12. Put on then, that word then goes back to verse 1 as, as well. Since you've been risen with Christ, then put these things on. And so we need to see the connection that we, we stated several times, the connection between our sanctification, our salvation, and our glorification. Let me say it this way. Those who are saved, those who have faith in Christ, truly saved, live a certain way to honor Christ and therefore they are saved, they live a certain way, they will be with Christ in a glorified, they, they will be in heaven. Salvation, sanctification, glorification all come together and they are all focused and centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ through his life of perfection and sinlessness, his death on the cross, his resurrection that secures our salvation. 
It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the focus and the motivation for our sanctification. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to, to get us and who we go with and live forever with in our glorification. So Christ is the focus. But you know, if we're not careful, the reason for Colossians is it, we see many people who bend and twist and pervert the gospel by trying to talk about these three things without a clear focus on Jesus. When you talk about salvation, being delivered and being rescued, and you don't focus on Jesus, you're not preaching the gospel. When you talk about sanctification, now the world talks a lot about sanctification. They talk about discipline. The doctor will tell you to eat right and exercise right. We have rehab programs that try to free people from, from different things, whether it's drugs or habits. In, when, look, when you try to approach sanctification outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have sanctification. You have a people, people getting better program that doesn't achieve its goal. What is sanctification? Sanctification is that part of becoming more and more like Christ in such a way that our whole life glorifies, gives, gives glory to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I'm simply just trying to lose weight so I can look good and I'm eating certain things and I don't eat meat and I don't eat this and I don't do that, that's just glorifying me. Jesus is nowhere in that goal, then it's not sanctification. Even if I fast and pray to do it, it's not sanctification. So Jesus then is the center then of all of our discipline, and the purpose is to glorify him and to be more like him. Anything less than that is simply not sanctification, and it's missing the mark. If it's not focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorification is the same way. You want to be looking forward to heaven and you ain't looking forward to Jesus, something is wrong. We talk about people in other religions talking about they, you know, they're going to have so many wives when they get into heaven. That's focusing on, on their, them and their pleasure. has nothing to do with Jesus and Jesus ain't even a part of that equation. That ain't God's plan. That's not glorification. That's not the way it's going to happen. Jesus is the focus. Note what he says in verse 11, that he'll be all and in all. It's all about him. It's all centered on him. So every phase of our salvation rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at some specifics today. When he talks about this sanctification, he talks about put to death, um, and then he, he, he says it this way in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, before I get into that, I needed to emphasize that as we work on these things in our, in our life, we remember that the focus is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it talks about sexual immorality, and, and, and a person can be sexually pure, without a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. They can abstain from things and still not be saved and walking with the Lord. 
But here he talks about some things that we who are believers, as we walk with the Lord, we need to be mindful of. It, it is to, to note that these things, most of them, when he says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, most of those deal in some way in, in, with, with a sexual tone to it. See, that's interesting. First of all, it's interesting because a lot of people think the Bible says nothing about our sexual conduct. It says a lot about it. So when he talks about then walking in ways that are pleasing the Lord, he centers on things that deal with our, our, our sexual life. What is he saying there? First of all, he's saying that God is involved in the most intimate act that you can commit, and he wants you to recognize him in the most private areas of your life. He wants to be Lord, not just when the lights are on, but Lord when the lights are off. He wants to be Lord not just in the chapel of the church, but Lord in your bathroom, Lord in your bedroom, Lord in the private areas of your life. So it is, there is not a notion that you have a public image Christianity to live out that's very different than your private image. God puts this all together and says, you belong to me and all that is a part of you belongs to me. That's very critical that we understand. God wants to get real private with you and real personal with you and said that the most personal, intimate part of your life needs to honor him. There is nothing that is off limits in terms of God being Lord over. You don't look at it as if, you know, well, I'm going to worship God on Sunday and I'm going to give him all that. But what I do in my own time is my own business. No such thing. Your breath is not your own business. He gave it to you. Your body is not simply your own business. We, we have a whole culture that says a woman's body is her own. She can do with it as she pleases. No, she can't. She didn't make her body. God gave her that, and she is to give account to God as well as a man to give account for all that he has and all that he is. All that we are then belongs to God, even that most private uh, thing that, that is a part of us. So he, he, he makes that mention. And then I also notice from these phrases, look what he says. Sexual immorality certainly deals with our behavior and our action in a sexual way, but it goes beyond that. He talks about impurity, passion, and evil desire. In those three terms, what I see here is that God deals not only with our behavior, what we do, but he deals with our thought life and how we think. What do we focus on? What do we meditate on? What is running through our minds? In other words, God is not content that we simply clean up our hands or wash our hands and do right in, in, in terms of what others can observe. God is interested in our hearts, our inner being, our meditation, our thoughts, what we are consciously uh, 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 going through in our minds, he's interested in that pleasing him. Jesus said it this way. He says, you've heard it of old that, that you should not commit adultery. But he says, if a man thinks on a woman 
in his heart, in his mind, in an inappropriate way, he has sinned. See what Jesus was focusing on? The people were saying, well, you know, I, I don't do this and I don't do that. But you love to hear the stories of people who do. We love to hear the office gossip. What happened? Who did what? What did she do? Who? Where? Where? When? How? And, and so we're intrigued by that. So he says, I want you to be on guard on all of that. Not just your behavior, but how you think. And so this grabs our attention in what he means for our holiness or our sanctification. <clears throat> He reminds us, verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He reminds us that God is not pleased with sinful behavior and, and not just the working out of it, but the thought of it. We have debates today talking about, you know, is homosexuality wrong? Is there anything in the Bible against it? And it's so off base. We even have, we have thoughts today of what if I think but don't act? What if I have a desire to do something but I don't act on it? Is it wrong? The Bible's very clear on that. Very clear. God is concerned with us as believers in thinking and behaving in right ways. Not just behaving. It's not just what you do but it's what you do as well as what you meditate on. And that's why I think he, he uses his last phrase in this first string of references, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Covetousness, and he explains, which is idolatry. He says, I don't want you to meditate on anything to the point where it becomes your God and that you serve it. And if we think on, on, on how things operate, we, we recognize that those things that we meditate on begin to lead us. They, they could be even innocent things. You could be hungry today, but you could be, have a mindset for that meal. And that's all that's on your mind. You ain't hearing a word I'm talking about, but the meal is foremost in your mind. It has taken over. It has led you. It has grabbed you by the nose and pulled you wherever it wants you to go. And you just said, take me. Take me wherever. Take me. And so what do we worship? What becomes our God is those things that we go hard after. What, what monopolizes our thinking and our mind? may not even be an evil thing in itself, but us going towards it then makes it a God that, that, that we should shun. All right, let's look at a few other things. In verse 8, he, he, he mentions a, a, another list of things, and we can see right away that this is not an exhaustive list. This is not listing everything there is to list, but he wants to get our attention and have us look at a few things. So in verse 8, he says, but now you must put them all away. Verse 7, you once lived that way. You, 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 uh, you had these things reigning in your life. Now you are to put them away. Um, and he mentions a few anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Uh, put them away from you. Put them off uh, from your mouth. And it's interesting, the connection here is that they 
really affect our relationships and our interaction with each other. That's where we see these things firing up. You know, if, if you and I lived on separate islands and didn't have to deal with each other, um, we, we wouldn't be subject to, 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 to these things disturbing us. But what happens is, is you put us together, all right, whether that's in the same home, same room, on the same company, on the same job, same vehicle, or the same street or the same city sometimes, just the fact that we interact and we, we run into each other, there's the potential for these things being stirred up. And what are they? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, I'm not going to get into detail what each one of those mean because I think that they're pretty obvious uh, uh, that 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 he's addressing some of these issues. But what I want to talk about is the relationships that are affected because of these things. Every relationship is affected. And what we see most of all is the most intimate relationships are affected. Parent to child. Ever seen a parent going off on a child in wrong ways? Children to parents, we see that. Spouses, husband to wife and wife to husband. You know, it's interesting, my many years of ministry, as we deal in counseling with couples, I often see this, it's not always expressed, sometimes it is expressed, but I often see this, it's, it's as if a couple is saying to me, you know, I have a couple in my office and they're struggling with a certain area, and it's as if they're saying to me, Pastor, I never really had this problem until I got married to so-and-so. And they're implying in that that the problem will go away. In fact, some people want to part that relationship because they think parting that relationship will get them get rid of the problem that they're having. If I just get away from so-and-so, I won't have this issue or this problem anymore. And it's, it's interesting, most of my counseling job is to convince them that simply isn't true. You see, the problem isn't because you have this relationship. In fact, what it is, is the relationship shows you more and more that you have this problem. You see, when, <laughs> when we have to work together, we have to interact with one another, it reveals certain things about ourselves that we may not normally know. I told the story once of a, of a cousin that I had who was the only child in his home, and when he would come to be with us, he, 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 you know, he just enjoyed being with us. We had a lot of fun. But he didn't have certain issues until he came to be with us. And the reason why is that, you see, when he was by himself, he didn't have to be patient with anybody else. He didn't have to wait on anybody else. He didn't have to take turns. You know, people say, well, you know, if I had my own bike at home, I wouldn't have to share it with nobody else. I wouldn't have to take turns. And everything would be smooth. Adults, married couples say, well, you know, if we had two cars, we wouldn't have this problem. 
you have your car, and I have mine. It's not the resources that is the problem. It's the lack of resources that makes the problem apparent. The parent is what's going on in our heart. And it becomes obvious. I believe, you know, I, I, I'm sure God has a sense of humor. And I think he put me in relationships so that I could see myself that I wouldn't see if I was all by myself. I wouldn't see my own selfishness. I wouldn't see my own pride. I wouldn't see a need to confess. I wouldn't see a need to admit wrong. When you're all by yourself, you aren't wrong. Whatever you do is right. And so what happens is we tend to isolate ourselves, and then when we come together with people, all of a sudden these problems start getting stirred up. And so we say things like, well, Pastor, before I was married, I didn't have that problem. And so it must be her fault. Before I was married, I didn't have this problem. It must be his fault. Before I had kids, never had this issue. It must be their fault. What happens is community and relationships exposes the sin of our own heart. And it becomes more and more obvious. So what he says here is be careful, be on guard about these things being stirred up in your life. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. You're going to badmouth someone. You say, well, you know, if they weren't acting that way, I wouldn't have to badmouth them. But what it does is that behavior and that connection exposes and acts like a mirror to show you something about yourself. In fact, when we talk about this area of discipline, this area of sanctification, it's interesting to note that this section shows us some interesting things about God's plan for our sanctification. And let me just skip down in my notes so, so I can get to this. I want to be sure to cover this. I, I, I phrase it this way. There are some key body terms that he uses in this passage. When I say body, God has joined us together in relationships. And what he says is that Jesus Christ is head of his people. And he describes that in several ways. One way he describes that is using a human body as a picture of our relationship with God. I mean, he says, Jesus is the head of that body, and each believer is a part on that body. Maybe a hand, maybe a finger, an arm. It's not so important what part it is, but the, the idea of the picture is that all of the parts are to work in sync and the only way they're going to do that is by getting instruction from the brain, right? Jesus is the head, so he gives out the command, and so the parts obey. You and I are all some part of the body. And I want you to notice why he takes special care to talk about, use these body terms when he talks about our sanctification or our growth or our walk with the Lord. It is because we have that notion that we function better apart and independent and we only have trouble when we have to work with somebody. 
That's a wrong notion because what happens is having to work with somebody simply exposes the wrong or the sin in our own self. And so he says, he makes a point. Well, first of all, let's, let's just discover it. Look at how he emphasizes the teamwork, the interaction, and, and, and the fact that we need to work together and not be uh, separate or, or not be uh, independent of each other. And this suggests, first of all, look at verse 9. Look, we're going to look through this passage and, look, and just point out couple of areas that he brings this up. We're going to look at the phrase, verse 9, do not lie to one another. Kind of underline that in your mind, one another. Okay, that's the body picture, one another. He's having us function in a group. He says, in this group, here's one of the rules, don't lie to, to one another. But he's not talking about people individually and independently and, and working all on their own. He says one another, right, collectively. Another phrase. In verse 11, we touched on this last week. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He says here. What does it mean here? He says, in this group of people, in the collection of my people, that's body talk again, in my body, there's no distinctions anymore. All are under Christ. This language is all being used in this section of sanctification of how we are to walk in ways that are pleasing to God. Let's look at some other phrases. Verse 13. Bearing with what? One another. See, if you live on an island, you ain't got to bear with nobody. Right? Right? Somebody we think if, if I get a big house and I live all by myself, I alleviate all my problems. But he says, it's important for you in your walk, in your sanctification, to what? Bear with one another. There's that body talk again, one another. Uh, again, in verse 13, another one, forgiving each other. You live on an island, you don't need forgiveness, right? And, and I say this because there's this notion. It's, it's, it's been with us as long as mankind has been here. You know, the monks have, have, have done this, and they, they thought, you know, here it is. Christianity calls us for, be, for us to be holy. Here's what we're going to do. It's hard living holy in Milwaukee. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to buy an island in the middle of Canada somewhere. I don't know. Anywhere. We're going to buy an island, and we're going to move our church. We're going to transport our church there. We're so sick of Milwaukee. We're so sick of all the nonsense, all the drugs, the violence, dealing with police, dealing with everything that's wrong and evil. We are gonna, our schools are, are just a mess. We're going to move and transplant ourselves to this island. And on this island, what's going to happen is, you know, because sometimes you got trouble in the church too, so we ain't going to have that. We're going to everybody have their own little piece of land, right? And they just worship on their own. They ain't gotta come on, they ain't gotta come together, you know. We don't have to worry about how the songs are put together, who gonna lead the choir, and who gonna usher, whose turn is it to clean, and we ain't gotta worry about all that. Everybody just gonna be on their own. We're gonna use technology to do this, and so we're gonna all worship together, but not really together. We're just gonna worship at the same time. Alright? So that solves all our issues. I ain't got no more problems anymore. That's the notion of holiness to most people. If I could just get away from it all. Men's retreat, 
Women's retreat, children's retreat, everybody retreat. Everybody just stay and live and retreat. Oh, that feels so good. But then we got to come back together and here we go. Couples do that same thing. Hun honey, we need a honeymoon. We need to get, we get away from the kids. If we just get away from our jobs, if we just have a vacation, if we just get away from everything all the time, how great it would be. People even think heaven's going to be like that. I'm just going to, I'm going to isolate myself and get away from everything. They got a wrong notion of heaven. Heaven is going to be heaven, not because we're away from everybody and independent. We're going to be with God. The problem is the sin issue is dealt with. It's not the coming together that makes things hard. It's the sin in each of us that goes to the extreme when we're together. And so he talks about this. So he says here, verse 11, he says, bearing with one another, verse 13, forgiving one another. And then verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called what? One body. Why does he keep on emphasizing that? Because God knows I'd be a whole lot holier if I didn't have an unholy wife or unholy children or unholy church members or whatever it was. But he says, I've called you together in one body. So there is something important that he wants us to learn that goes along with the sanctification. Let me say it. God's plan for our sanctification is a plan of connectedness. You're not going to have it apart from that. That connectedness is called his body. It is church. It is, yes, local church. Because, you know, some people want to get spiritual when we talk about universal church. And, 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 yeah, I'm part of universal church, but I ain't got nothing to do with no local church. I don't need that. I'm spiritual. I know what the Bible says. I'm God's and I belong to God. And, but notice here, though, he's talked a lot about one another in this sanctification process. And the point is, you cannot escape God's purpose to build you properly apart from being joined with others. You're not going to get where God wants you to be without connecting with God's people. It is that connectedness that God uses to sharpen us, to, to, to build us, to break us sometimes, to expose us sometimes, to even make us uncomfortable sometimes. But it's that process that he uses that we might be what he wants us to be. It is not isolation that does it. It is the connectedness. It is the one-bodiness that God uses in his purpose to build us the way he wants us to be. Again, in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing huh? one another. He didn't say go worship on an island all by yourself. He said connect yourself with each other and teach and admonish. That's not easy, folks. I don't always like to be taught. I like to say, I know it already. 
So you don't have to tell me something, and I have to feel like I got to learn something, and I got to submit to you, and you got to submit to me. You know, most of us, we want to learn it on our own. Just give me the book, I'll read it, and I'll learn it. And after I learn it, I'll tell you what I know. We don't want a brother or sister coming along and say, you know what? You're struggling with that. Can I help? Oh, no, no, I don't need you. Yeah, you do. Yes, you do. That's why God put you together, that he might build you the way he wants you to be, connected with other people. You can't be a leader if you're not first taught in connection with other people. God wants us to get that. He wants us to understand that. Now let's look at verse 12, some of the positives. We looked at the negatives, the things that we need to put off, the things we need to put to death. But he says in verse 12, put on. Then, we remarked all already what that then refers to. Because you're saved, because it's God's will that you be sanctified, put on. Now, this term of put on, uh, really, we can see that in dressing, right? We, we put on clothing. And what he's saying is, properly equip and prepare yourself for warfare, for battle. Because that's what it is. It, it's a battle. Put on. He says, don't come undressed or not properly equipped. I, I remember in, in high school, played football and, and um, went into the, the first practice and and, you know, I, I felt like, man, the coach wants me on this team. He must think I know something. He must think I have some talent and some ability. So, man, I can't wait to get out on that field and, and show him what I got. What I understood, though, is the first process of, of practicing, before I could even practice, I had to put the pads on. I had to get dressed. And guess what? I didn't know how to put the pads on. I thought I did. And, 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 you know, if you put pads on the wrong way, <laughs> they're going to hurt you more than help you. Somebody that say, hey, dude, man, uh, <laughs> you got them thigh pads on the wrong way. They're going to pinch you in areas you ain't going to like. <laughs> and, and they were helpful in helping me get dressed and helping me prepare for what I was going to do. Here he says, put on. Put on these things. And keep in mind, as we put on, it's other people that are helping. It's part of the body that are helping us to put on to see if we got it on right. He ain't just giving you a, a locker with a full of, of uniform and say, go put it on, on your own and figure out how it goes. There's a person next to you in that locker room that says, hey, man, it's easier putting your shoulder pads on this way. And help me. let me tie it up in the back because you can't do that for yourself. Let me be of help to you. He says, put on these things. Notice before he even gets to the, these things, he reminds us of a couple things. And the key word that's not written in here is because. Put on then, the word is as, as God's chosen one. In other words, because you are, first of all, you're chosen by God. 
you are chosen. You are God's chosen ones. I know we like to think, especially in America, that we do everything of our own accord, and when we get getting ready to do something, that's when we do something. But we need to understand something. None of us were born of our own accord. None of us said, Mama, Daddy, I'm ready to come into this world. It's time. I'm ready to be conceived. Now I'm ready to be born. None of us did that. God says, I made a decision to bring you into life. And now you're here. Same thing spiritually. God decided to bring you into life spiritually, and he gave you life. He expresses this way, you're chosen by God. Now that should make you feel special in a special way and in a right way. God chose you. Every day as part of your worship, you ought to at least a little bit marvel at why he chose you. You will never find an answer to that. You won't. If you do, you found the wrong answer. You did. It's because, you know, I just, I just, I'm just it. I got talent. I got skill. I got potential. I got ability. God says, I made you out of dust. You ain't got nothing. But I chose you. I chose you. So it's not any reason in yourself, but it's in my heart, my mind, my decision. I chose you. But God wants us to know that. He doesn't hide that from us like, I ain't going to tell them this because they're going to get big-headed. Uh, I'm going to hide this from them. I ain't going to mention them in my word that they chose. It. No, he says, I want you to know, I chose you. I chose you. Isn't that amazing that the God that is creator of all that is selected me? And he says, now that's the basis of this walk I have for you. I have chosen you. Because I have chosen you, you can and you must. You're able because I've chosen you. Secondly, he says, put on then as chosen ones, holy and beloved. He wants to remind you that you are holy and you are beloved. Well, the word holy simply means that you have been set apart for God's use. You are distinct and God has a special idea, mission, and purpose for you. That's true. God has selected you, and he has a reason, or he has something in mind for you. So, you, you know, it, it's like if, if, you, if you ever discipline yourself, whether it's a diet or whether it's an exercise, you got to say, I'm doing this for a purpose. That, that's what guides you and, and gets you through. God is saying, I want you to live this way because I have a purpose for you. So God says, you are holy. And then he says this again, beloved. Loved by God. The truth in this life is it, is, it is something else when God reminds us through people that we are loved and, and we have mothers, we have fathers, we, we have family members that often show us that. But even if you had none of those, What's really deep down important is that God loves you. Because all those other people, they're, 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 they're fallible. They, they, they have mistakes. They have issues. Sometimes they so concentrate on themselves that, that they can't show you that love. 
But God says, I created you. And regardless what everybody else thinks about you or displays towards you, I love you. He says, I want you to know you are beloved. You are loved by God. See, nobody can take that away from you. Satan try to, he, he always trying to, trying to make uh, ugly comments, but what he can't get away from is that I'm loved by God. He wants to say, well, what, what make you think you loved by God? Who are you? I, I ain't nobody. But I'm loved by God. And God has declared that to me and continues to declare that to me. God doesn't shield us. He doesn't hide that from us. He comes out and he lets us know, you are loved. You are holy. You are chosen. These are all things you had nothing to do with. God did to you. He lavished on you his love. So when you worship him, you're simply saying, thank you, God. I'm amazed. I don't know why. I don't know how. I know how long. You promised to always love me. Your love will never fail for me but I can't understand it, I'll never understand it, but I'll just praise you for it. I'll just marvel at that. That is what guides then this walk of, of sanctification for us. So he says, put on some things. And he's basically saying, prepare yourself for battle. He, he mentioned several things. And the connection they have is they deal with our connectedness. These are the things I want you to clothe yourself with. Notice what he says. Verse, verse 12. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, I've said this. If you live on an island, you don't need any of those. Right? If you take care of yourself all by yourself, what do you need compassion for anybody with. It's amazing. People who think like that often, you know, want to live by themselves, they have more compassion for their pets than they have for their relatives. Because they haven't learned this lesson. God means for us to be connected together, not just with animals. They're trying to replace, you know. They put clothes on their animals. They give them cutesy names. They give them all kind of food. Animals don't even regular to eat. They spoil them because they're trying to treat them like a human being when they really ought to be treating human beings like human beings. And what it's called? Compassion. That's what it's called. Treating human beings like human beings. Having compassion. He's not just talking about us towards the world, though. He's first and foremost talking about us amongst each other. The connectedness of believers to each other. He says compassion. He says Kindness, humility. What do you need humility for if you're the top dog and the only dog? Not only are you on top of the mountain, but you own the mountain. Ain't nobody else allowed on the mountain. You, you it. You don't need humility. You don't need compassion. You don't need kindness. But that's not the world that God has placed us in. He wants us interacting with each other in a local church amongst God's people regularly, humility, meekness, patience, patience, patience. 
if you didn't have human relationships, you wouldn't need patience. But in every human relationship, in every relationship, in every relationship, <laughs> you need patience. You know, some people give, give their cars names, Betsy. And if you give your car a name, as soon as you make that kind of relationship, you're going to need some patience at some point in time. Because sometimes old Betsy ain't going to want to go, right? Come on, Betsy, start for me. You know I got to get here. Come on, please. You're showing patience with an inanimate object. You're showing patience. Can you do the same for your wife? Can you do the same for your children? Can you do the same for the people of God? Patience. So you can see these terms he's talking about to work on us all have to do with the fact that we're here together. You notice when you came in this morning, our seats are changed. They're angled now. And there's something about that. You know, we, we've angled them before. We did that primarily because of the play. But, you know, one of the reasons I like it is that, you know, you're not just squared off facing looking at me. Now you recognize you're looking more at each other, too. <laughs> you see, you become more aware of each other. Now, sometimes you might not like that. You might like to, you know, I know I used to come in church. I wanted to sit right in the front row. And it's not because I was so holy. I didn't want kids crying. I didn't want folks getting up and out of their seats, distracting me all the time. I came to worship, and that's what I want to do. I'm like, I was like an usher. Sit down, shut up, so I can worship. <laughs> now, you know that sounds bad, don't it? Because we come to worship, and we interact with each other. You're going to have some kids crying sometimes. You have people doing what they shouldn't be doing, which means you might have to tell them not to do that. You might have to admonish them a little bit. You might have to encourage them. You might have to rebuke them sometimes. You might have to do that with a right heart. You might have to, in other words, you might have to coexist. You might have to interact with other people in ways that aren't always pleasant, but it's God's purpose to build you and them. So it's not in a vacuum. It's not on an island. God wants us to work together. Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to how you work, how you use others around us to build us in the way that you want us to be. And you open our eyes to how this work has to be centered on Christ. So now, Lord, I pray at this moment that we quiet ourselves and we would now commit ourselves to how you work. That means we need to commit ourselves to being a part of other people's lives. We need to commit ourselves to be connected with other people. For some of us, that means getting nosy a little bit, talking, interacting, not shunning, not seeking privacy, but opening up. That's going to bring on its own difficulties, but Lord, we have your word to teach us. We have your people to help us learn. And we simply say, we want to simply say yes to your process. So Lord, we would pray that that would be happening right now as we are quiet and as we are still. That we would place ourselves in your hands together with your people to be used as you would please without any restraints, restrictions on our part, 
We just want to say yes. We do this, Lord, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not stay in heaven as our Savior. He came down on this messy, mixed up, dirty earth, this world. He mingled with us, with people, with human beings. He suffered because of that. But he interacted. Through that interaction, Lord, he showed his disciples what he was about so that they would understand what his purpose was. His purpose was to die on a cross for our sins, to be raised from the dead for our victory and our sanctification, to be resurrected, to be ascended up into heaven for our glorification. And he leads us down here now that we might go through this process to help others to be saved, help others to be sanctified, help others to be sure of a future glorification. He did that for us. Help us, Lord, to commit ourselves now to the process that you have for us that's a part of trusting Christ, that process of sanctification that comes through our connectedness. Rebuke us where we have shunned our responsibilities in those areas. Where we pulled away from the body instead of wanting to be connected. Challenge us to make that connection strong and make it be a part of our regular life because you intended to be that way. Now we pray this in Jesus' name.